Uh, If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. I think you will be helped greatly if you have a physical Bible. We're going to look at a few chapters here and we're going to kind of be flipping around a little bit. And so you will be helped if you have a physical Bible. We're going to continue our sermon series in Amos. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 908. Now, when I first sort of suggested Amos as an Easter text, I think a lot of people, or maybe just my staff, might have laughed and scoffed a bit. Amos is a lot of darkness, a lot of judgment. But what I want to accomplish today, what I hope to accomplish, is that you leave here thinking, the book of Amos is all about Easter. It might be a tall task. I pray that by by the time you leave, you'll realize how much this really is connected to the Easter story. Uh, a A few years ago, I was watching an interview with the author of the Harry Potter series, J.K. Rowling. And this interviewer asked her, so, so, so why is it that your books get darker and darker and darker as the series goes, goes on? And I just really appreciated her response. She said this. She, she said uh, that they get progressively darker because the greater the darkness, the greater the evil, the greater the degree of love and light necessary to overcome them. So, so if you want to put love on display, well, contrast it with darkness. That's what she's saying, right? If you want to show goodness and the beauty of goodness, contrast it with something vile. If you want to display Easter and the hope of Easter, display it with Good Friday, right? Or to put it in the language of Amos, if you want to display restoration, contrast it with ruin. And that's the function of this weekend, and it's the function of the book of Amos. The function of this weekend is darkness to light. The darkness of Good Friday contrasted with the light and hope of the resurrection on Easter. And the book of Amos functions like that. For nine chapters, we've got judgment, darkness, sadness, but then bursting out in the last few verses of the book of Amos is light and brightness and love and mercy and grace and goodness. So as we go into the darkness of judgment, I think it sets a a stark contrast for the glory and the light that's coming for God's people here in the book of Amos. So here's the big idea this morning. It's going to be on the screen behind me. We're going to look at it sort of in two parts. God tears down his house, but he does so in order to restore it abundantly. So half the sermon's going to be kind of the darkness of Good Friday, the darkness of judgment, there is going to be such a stark contrast that I really do feel it's going to be like whiplash when we read about the goodness and the glory and the grace that comes in light of the darkness of judgment. 
So in chapter 789, which we're going to look at, judgment finally falls on God's people, right? In, in chapters one and two, darkness or uh, judgment was declared. And then in chapters three, four, five, and six, it was kind of described and explained why God's people were being judged. But now in verses seven, eight, and nine, the judgment finally falls. So Amos is, if you remember, he is preaching about 700 years before Christ. He's preaching in a time of prosperity. He's preaching in the northern tribe of Israel. And they wouldn't listen, would they? It's a call of repentance, a call to seek God and live, and yet they would not heed the voice of God through the messenger of God. And so judgment falls. And here now it falls in gruesome details. And the, the, the sort of breakdown of the structure of these three chapters, it's pretty simple. There are five visions. And they all start the same way. You can see it in verse 1 of chapter 7. They all start the same way, these five visions. This is what the Lord God showed me. And then we have a vision. So we have a vision in chapter 7, verse 1 of locusts. Then in chapter 7, verse 4, we have the vision of fire. Then in verse 7, the vision of a plumb line. Chapter 8, verse 1, the vision of a basket of summer fruit. And then finally, the fifth vision, chapter 9, verse 1, the vision of a Lord beside the altar. And all of these visions are visions of judgment. So let me read the first three visions for us. Chapter 7, verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when he later, when the later growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How could Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, The Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, oh Lord God, please cease. How could Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, says the Lord God. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside the wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. We'll stop there. So so there in chapter 7 verse 1 is the first vision. And it's the vision of locusts. And there's sort of a double meaning here. There's a double entendre going on. So locusts are not just, you know, a nuisance. They were a disaster, an ecological disaster. They would come in swarms and just destroy the vegetation. And so here you've got this judgment that's saying this whole locust, like the locusts found in the Exodus, it's going to come and it's going to destroy 
But, but, but this isn't, this is poetry, remember. So, so poetry often isn't just like literal, right? And, and so th- there's a sense in which this is figurative language because this locus isn't just physical locus. It's talking about the Assyrian army that's coming in about two decades and they're going to destroy Israel. And when they do, the vegetation and the land and the crops, just like if a locust came, they too are going to be destroyed. That's the first vision. The, the second vision is of a great fire. And so not only is locust going to come, but now this fire, and so you have locusts and fire together, and you, you get this sort of idea, right? When this judgment comes, there's going to be drought, starvation, famine. It is going to be horrific. But, but if you notice in the first two visions, there's a response. There's this vision, and then Amos responds and cries out and says, God, please forgive God's people. They're, they're so small, they, they, they won't be able to stand in light of this judgment. And he cries out, and look at the response. Amos cries out, eerily similar to Moses. Do you remember, remember the scene in Exodus 32, right? That they, the people of God are just brought, saved, given this, given all these promises. God meets with his people. They've left Egypt and then they go back and worship this golden calf when Moses is up. And God says, I'm going to destroy them. And Moses pleads, he mediates before God's people and God, and God relents. Well, Amos functions in a very Moses-like way. He mediates before God, and look at what God says. Verse 3 and 6. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, says the Lord. So, so in light of Amos's intercession... God suspends judgment. And I'm guessing Amos is like, whoo, that was a close one. Okay. But then we have another vision, don't we? Verse 7, the third vision. And this is the vision of a plumb line. Now, I was like thinking like, oh, plumbing, but this has nothing to do with plumbing in that sense, all right? Right? So plumbing is, think of it, it's like a measure, it's, it's a way of measuring to, to make sure something is vertical, something is, is straight. It was an ancient construction tool. And so the image here is of God standing before a wall, and the wall represents Israel, and he's got a plumb line in his hand, and he's measuring God's people. And the plumb line is God's righteous standard of living. It's God's word. So God, standing before Israel, you know, is judging them according to God's righteous rule, his word. And basically, the vision is, Israel's out of plumb. They're out of line. When, you, when God is measuring God's people according to God's word, they fall, they, they, they fall out of plumb. They, they, they fall short. They are not righteous. God gave his people his word and said, this is how I want you to live. I want you to live and worship me alone. I want you to love one another. I want you to live and fight for justice. And yet here, well, we read it, didn't we? They're worshiping other gods. They're getting rich at the expense of the poor. And God says, I measured them and they fell short of my standard. And it's interesting at that moment, the silence of Amos. 
He doesn't plead before God's people, does he? He is just silent. At this moment, it's as if Amos is saying, it's Israel, it's, it, they're, too, they're too far gone. They're too out of step with God and his righteous standard. They don't merit forgiveness. Now, if that doesn't get dark enough, flip over to chapter 8. The fourth vision. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end will come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailing in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. In my backyard, I have a blueberry bush. And right now, hopefully this late frost doesn't, didn't kill it, but, but it's, it's trying to bud, right? And then eventually it'll, it'll blood and there'll be uh, bud and then there'll be blueberries. And all I'll need to do is just send my kids out to, to pick them, right? That's the image here, as horrific as it is. Israel is like a summer basket. They are ripe for the picking. Judgment has finally come. And the summer feasts, right? The, the feasts and festivals that, that, that accompany the harvest, no more. There's no summer barbecues on this day. There's just wailing and deafening silence. And then from verse 4 to verse 14, you get a, or sort of a, a rehearsal once again of why God is judging them. I'm not going to read it. But, but they explain that they are proud. They're getting rich at the expense of the poor. They are worshiping other gods. It just goes on and on and on. And then the description of judgment is eerily similar to the judgment that fell on the Egyptians in the Exodus. That's the fourth vision. And then we get to the last vision. Flip over to chapter 9, verse 1. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to the heaven, for there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from me in the sight of the bottom of the sea, there I will command a serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eye upon them for evil and not for good. So the fifth vision is God standing behind the altar at Bethel. And the altar of Bethel, theoretically, was where God's people were to meet with God. That's the function of an altar. It's where God's people would meet with God and seek out forgiveness. To seek closeness and intimacy with God. But not in this vision. Here, when God's people go and look for God and seek forgiveness in God and seek restoration with God, they're not going to find a God of forgiveness in that sense. They're going to find judgment at the altar. 
And in verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, it's all poetic ways of describing the same reality, isn't it? They can go high or low. They can go north or west. They can swim to the bottom of the sea or get to the heights of heaven. They can go. They can try to run. They can try to hide. But there is no running from God. There's an old saying, right? When the cat's away, the mice will play. Well, God in this book, in Amos, is described as a cat, a lion. And when he comes, there will be nowhere to run and hide. Now, five visions, five judgments. And you might be thinking, on Easter? I know, on Easter. And you might also be thinking, I mean, is God being a bit melodramatic here? I mean, they're bad, but are they really that bad? Is anyone really that bad? I think judgment's a hard pill to swallow for us all. It is today. And it was in Amos's day. I mean, just fl- fl- flip over into chapter 7. There are these five visions, but I don't know if you noticed, but there is a, there is an interlude. Five visions of judgment, and then a priest... The high priest at Bethel interrupts Amos and tells him to be quiet. He doesn't like the judgment. He doesn't like God's word. And he basically says, starting in verse 10, Amaziah says, Amos, be quiet. You're conspiring against the king. How dare you speak against Israel and the king? And so Amaziah, the high priest, in light of this message of judgment, he rejects it and says, Amos, you need to be quiet and you need to go back to Judah where you came from. You're not welcome here at Bethel. You're not welcome here in Israel. And your message isn't welcome either. I mean, Amaziah as the priest, I mean, that's how bad it's gone. That's how bad it's gotten in Israel. The, The person who is supposed to represent God's people that the sort of spiritual vitality of God's people won't even listen to God and God's message through his messenger. And so he says, get away from me. And in response, well, Amos pronounces judgment on him. I told you it would get dark. It gets dark, but like J.K. Rowling said, Sometimes it's got to get darker before you realize the goodness and glory of love. I mean, it, it, it's sort of like when, when my wife and I were in graduate school and we were like graduate school poor. And I remember one time we had a discussion if we should get a 99 cent red box, financially speaking. Like, should we get a red box tonight? I mean, that's right. And so right now I look back on that and I just think, oh, that's great because I don't really think about a dollar purchase anymore. And so the blessing that God has given, the provision, it's a contrast because of what it was like 15 years ago. And so that's what Amos is kind of rolling out. These visions of darkness and judgment are about to burst out into unimaginable light. The vision of locusts, the vision of fire, the vision of God's people being out of plumb with God's word. 
You've got the, the vision of a summer basket and then the vision of God standing before the altar. Time has run out on God's people and God has torn down his people. He's torn down his house. Exile is coming in 20 years. And I just like to remind us, exile, that you might think that's not really bad. Oh, oh, it is. I mean, when another country, a foreign country comes, we're sort of living through this right now, and, and conquers, what happens? People are dispersed and you lose national identity. You lose your homes, your family. Exile is a terrifying image for loss and sin. But remember, even though exile is coming, there is still hope. And I'm going to read the hope, and I think all of us should be shocked because you just see this drumbeat of judgment, 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 darkness, darkness, darkness. And then you get to chapter 9, verse 8, which is a hint, and then I'll read starting in verse 11. Chapter 9, verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. And you're like, okay. There's going to be a faithful remnant. Judgment's coming, but some will survive. The faithful remnant. And then you get to verse 11. And this is what God says. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as of days of old. And they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who were called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, the days are coming. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. It will restore, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord God. Hey, Have you ever like been to a movie theater? Like you watched a movie, like a matinee. It's in the afternoon and you've just sat two hours in darkness. And then you walk straight out into the afternoon sun and it's like blinding. That's like the image I get here. We've just been sitting in nine chapters of darkness and judgment and you walk and there's all this language of restoration and hope. And it's blinding, isn't it? Sometimes you gotta go into the darkness and the judgment and despair in order to see the goodness and glory and love of God. And that's what happens. God sort of hints at this promise in verse 8 that he's not going to totally destroy his people. And then it just gets amazing that God is actually going to tear down his people. They're going to go into exile. That's inevitable. But out of that ruin, he's going to build his house. Now, how does he do this? Well, just look. We're going to look at these last four verses in Amos. We're going to just settle in these verses. He's going to rebuild it through Easter. This is why this is an Easter text. Verse 11. Verse 11 says, In 
In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as of the days of old. Notice the language. The language is language of restoration. What what was and was lost will be once again restored. And this whole idea of a booth or think of a tent, another translation, this booth or this tent of David that has fallen is going to be raised up. A house is going to fall, but out of the ruins of this house will be raised up a house. But notice, it's not connected to Israel in that sense. It's not connected to Jeroboam. It's not like, and I will raise up the booth or tent of Jeroboam. That's not the language here. It's the booth or tent of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, there is this promise. A promise that God gives to David. That one day, a son of David will come. A king who will sit on the Davidic throne forever. And that promise sits on God's people for generations. The promise of a future Davidic king. And now Amos borrows from that language, the language of 2 Samuel 7, and says that promise is still good. They haven't lost that promise. God will, even though they're wrought with sin, even though judgment will come, even though they deserve judgment, that promise has not been forfeited. The seed of David, the Davidic king, the coming one, the Messiah will come. Out of the ruins of Israel will rise a better Israel. I mean, it's bad in, in Amos's day. And judgment is coming, but here is the, the hope that Jesus, the Davidic king, would come and fulfill all of the promises of the Old Testament. Now, what would this David do? Well, just keep reading. Verse 12. He may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. Now, we have to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of those in Israel during Amos's day. Edom, not a good people, okay? They're not the good guys. They're the bad guys. Not a good people. And they were a pesky people. No king in Israel ever defeated Edom. Except for one. David. David was the only king of Israel who ever conquered Edom. And so here he says, oh, this Davidic king, this booth of David that's going to come out of the ruins, he will defeat Edom and all the nations. And you might think, oh, is this talking about military conquest? I mean, that that was the reading in the first century when Jesus was on the right. Oh, this is going to be a military conquest but it's not, is it? And we know that because there are only two quotes of Amos in your New Testament. Only two of them. And they're both in the book of Acts. And one of them, Jason read earlier, Acts 15. In Acts 15, Amos chapter 9, verse 11, 12, and 13 is quoted to prove something. And so you have this Jerusalem council and you have a question being debated. It is the most important question in the early church. If they had gotten it wrong, we probably wouldn't be here. The question 
that the church was considering is, do Gentiles, do the Edomites, do all those who are not ethnically Jewish, do they need to appear, uh, adhere to all of the religious obligations of the Old Testament law, including circumcision, in order to be saved and incorporated and called God's people? So, so, so was there a trajectory between uh, someone who becomes, so, who trusts in Jesus, but then they'd have to, in order to get into God's family, get circumcised, and then they'd be in God's family? Or can a Gentile just, by faith in Jesus Christ, be part of and parcel of God's family? That was the debate going on. And James, in Acts 15, quotes Amos to prove that through Jesus Christ, the Gentiles and the nations can come. And they don't have to come through circumcision anymore or obedience to the law. The nations are him. And so what, what, what this interpretation in Acts 15 is to this is basically saying is when this tent of David, when this Davidic king would come, he wouldn't come and conquer the nations in that sense. This would be a missionary conquering in which the nations would come through him and to him. You see, God is restoring a people for himself. That, that's, that, that's God's heart from Genesis to Revelation. God is making a people for himself, even the Gentiles. And he's doing so through raising up Jesus at the first Easter. God's restoring a people ruined by sin by pointing by, uh, by pouring out his grace and his mercy and his love through Jesus Christ. I told you this is an Easter text, isn't it? We live, I think, particularly maybe in the last couple of years, we would say, I mean, we, we live in a dark world and there's brokenness and there's abuse and there's sin and there's selfishness and there's war and there's death and there's pains. That's the world we live in from the dawn of time until today. And so we live under the sort of the the cloud of darkness. And yet what Amos is saying is that there is hope, hope in this risen up Davidic king. Now, what, what did this Davidic king go? Well, well, here we got, we do need to go to the New Testament to find out that Jesus, he lives a perfect life and he dies to take our curse, our sin, our judgment that we deserve, and instead of putting it on us, Jesus dies for us. And then he is raised to life. He, who knew no sin, is ruined by sin, accursed with sin, and then God vindicates him in the resurrection, raises him life, and we can have life in him. Easter is all about the curse being reversed. It's God, God's son taking the judgment of Amos upon himself so that we can get the blessing, the blessing that we don't deserve. God is restoring the fortunes of his people. That's what verse 14 says. He is rebuilding the city. Look at this language. He is restoring through Jesus Christ a people for himself. The ruined cities, they're going to be rebuilt. This is all poetic Images, houses are going to be inhabited. Fruit, it's going to be sweet again. There's going to be a reversal of the curse. 
or we can put it this way, the curse is going to be reversed. Do you you remember how Amos describes judgment and the curse of sin? We we see it in chapter 5, verse 11. He says, you're going to build houses, but you're not going to be able to dwell in them. You're going to plant vineyards, but you won't drink its wine. And then what do we read here? You're going to build homes, and you're going to live in them. You're going to plant vineyards, you're going to drink their wine. You're going to make gardens, and you're going to enjoy blueberries. It's a complete reversal, isn't it? Not, no longer judgment, but blessing. No longer curse, but goodness. I mean, this is outrageous that this is the, the, the blessing and the bounty found in Christ Jesus, that when this Davidic king would come and die and be raised up, that life in its abundance would come because the curse would be reversed. And it's going to be outrageous blessing. Look at verse 13. Once again, poetic imagery to describe the bounty found in Christ. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed and the mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. So you see it's the image? You've got reapers and plowers and treaders and people sowing and they're like bumping into the, each other, right? There's just so much harvest. There, this assembly line, they just don't know where to put it all. I mean, the, the, the image then is so extravagant. It's like just wine flowing down from the mountains to the people. I mean, it would be like going to a dinner party and, and you're, the, the person who invited you gr- says, I'm going to grab a, a fancy bottle of wine and you find out it's like a, like a thousand dollar bottle of wine. And he just takes a sip and he goes, nope, this isn't good and just pours it out and goes and grabs a $2,000 bottle of wine. I mean, that's extravagance. That's what this restoration looks like. Wine just flowing out of the mountains. But isn't that how Jesus describes himself when he comes? He says, I have come, John 10.10, that you might have life and in it life abundantly. Life in Christ is abundance. Just think of the abundance that you have because this Davidic king came. You have forgiveness. You have union with him. You have a new family. You are adopted sons and daughters. No longer do you have to go to bed worrying about your relationship to God. You have access to God. You have a new heart, new desires. God himself indwells you by the spirit. You can have rest for a weary souls. I mean, when this booth of David came, he came with pouring out blessings, didn't he? Streams of it. Because the curse of judgment that sin brings on, has fallen. The ultimate tent of Jesus, who came up, took up resident, living a perfect life, and then he dies. He then restores the people to himself and pours out blessing on them. Blessing future tense and blessing present tense. Now, if that's not good enough, there's one more amazing promise Here, we see it in verse 15. This is almost too good to be true. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord God. 
All along, they won't listen. God sends a messenger and calls them to, to seek God, to, to return to God. God. God speaks and all they do is listen and tell Amos to be quiet. And how does the book end? I mean, if I'm writing this book, I'm like, I'm going to give them what they deserve. Not God. God promised that he would not bring exile one day. The judgment, the ultimate judgment metaphorically was exile. But he says, there will become a day when you will not be exiled or exiles any longer. They're exiled because of their apostasy, their hypocrisy, their sin, their idolatry. And yet God says, one day, one day I will plant my people and root them so deep that they will never leave again. Now, when is that fulfilled? Well, there's two fulfillments of it. There's a past and a present. In, in a true sense, this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ at Easter. Jesus dies, he's risen from the grave, and right before he ascends, he gathers his people together and he says, I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. That's Jesus saying, you will never be exiled from my presence. Whatever darkness comes into your life, whatever hardship, one thing that you can't lose is God's presence. That's the first. But there's a second, a future fulfillment. It's interesting that actually First Peter, or the, the, the Apostle Peter in his book, First Peter, he picks up this whole idea of exile only. He calls the church those who are in exile. And what he's not saying is that they are in exile in the sense that they don't have access to God. He's saying that they are scattered, that they're not fully restored. I mean, I'm tired of viruses and sickness. I'm tired of other people's sin. I'm tired of my own sin. So we are in a true sense restored in Christ, but we are in another sense not fully restored, are we? And so this promise in verse 15 this future promise that God one day will actually bring an exiled people and root them and plant them in such a way that they will fully, finally, eternally be restored. Where do we see that? Well, we see it at the end of the story, the last book of your Bible, but but it's hinted at or described, I think, best in the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7, we read this. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be my delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. Do you see the language of restoration? Another prophet describing future restoration No more curses, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin, no more desiring sin, no more desiring to desire sin. Gone. That's the end of this story. The first Easter is pointing to the second Easter. Not that Christ is going to be raised again, but that his church, actually all of humanity will be raised again and 
then Jesus will consummate all things in the sense that he will remake all things. And the curse that started in Genesis 3, when the world was broken, he's going to refashion it in very Edenic-like ways. In a very Amos-like ways. Where we will enjoy the world, not in indulgence, but in, in a way in which we enjoy the world in relationship to God as we worship God for it. Amos, it's a dark book. It is a book about judgment. But it's a book about Easter. About God taking dark times and a dark people who are wrought with sin, promising to remake them and renew them through Jesus Christ who himself would be ruined by sin and raised to newness of life, and then he would take a people from all the nations and bring those people to himself and remake them slowly in that son's name so that they can be with God everlastingly. I don't know if you ever thought of Amos as a a story about Easter. I don't even know if I've convinced you. Don't tell me after the service if I hadn't. But Amos is a book about light bursting out of darkness, about grace coming to the undeserved. It's a book about Easter. It's a book to remember not just the ruin of our own sin, but to just do that for a moment and then take 10 looks at Christ and his grace and his mercy for our joy and the world's good and God's glory. Let's pray. God, we, um, we are so grateful this Easter that as we come and we consider your son Jesus Christ and all that he's done, none of us deserves. We, we all live inconsistent lives. We are all broken. We all deserve your righteous wrath. If you took a plumb line to any of us, we would definitely be not straight according to your standard of righteousness, Lord, all of us. And so we are grateful for, your, for Easter, for it's a reminder to us of grace that was won on Calvary for us and vindicated in the resurrection. So we thank you for that, Lord, and we thank you that we get to gather together in his name and worship him in all of his redemptive accomplishments. And it's in whose name we pray. Amen.